pray. Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if you were with us last week, we finished a series on prayer. We ended talking about temptation, which seems appropriate, given the fact that we're starting a new series here called Glittering Vices. We're looking at what traditionally has been referred to as the seven deadly sins. And one of the things that uh, we're doing is we're, we're pairing this with what's called the Lenten season. So Ash Wednesday, I was talking with someone about uh, the carnival season down in Brazil going on right now, Mardi Gras, and of course, next week. But Ash Wednesday is truly the beginning point of the Lenten season. This is that traditional season on the church calendar where Christians stop and contemplate and be a little bit more reflective than maybe normal, we might say. To think about uh, what was the point of Good Friday where Jesus goes to the cross? What was the point, of course, of Easter Sunday morning resurrection? And if certainly what we want to do is we want to look at these vices, but one of the things I want you to notice, and you probably are, have already seen it with the title of the sermon, is that we don't want to just look at the vices. We want to look at virtue as well. And that's important, because to look at one without the other, I think, is honestly, it's, it's problematic. Why? Because sin is always an aberration of a good thing. I want you to hear that again. Sin is always an aberration of a good thing. You can turn to anything. You can talk, we can talk about lust. We can talk about anger. We can talk about money, things like this. And there's always something good. There's always a kernel of truth in it. But left to our own devices, we take a good God thing and we turn it into something else. And so one of the things that I think is very important regarding preaching in general, and I've made mention over the years periodically about what I think good preaching should be and what it should look like. But if I were simply to spend time with you talking about sin, it wouldn't be very hopeful preaching. Or if we just spent all the time talking about virtues, right, and talking about, hey, we're good, it wouldn't be very helpful preaching. Because that's not reality. We live in a broken world even as we look at the global headlines as we speak. No, preaching needs to be both hopeful and helpful. Thus, we need both sides. We need to look at vice. We need to look at virtue. Because to look at a vice is to look at something that points to the true thing. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to ask the question, what then is this vice vanity? What is it actually? And then secondly, why is it so attractive? It's glittering. But then finally, what is it that we need that's better than vanity? And the answer is a true glory. And so we're going to explore that this morning. Let's start with the very first thing here. We're going to ask this question again. What is this vice vanity? Look at verses 1 and 2 with me again. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly. I say to you, they have received their reward. Jesus has been preaching what's traditionally called the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest recorded sermon in all the scriptures. And he's been talking at length about what is righteousness. And perhaps he could see the wheels turning in his audience that day. And so he wanted to give them a caveat. Well, righteous, righteousness is this, but let me tell you what isn't righteousness. And what he talks about here is the word vanity, the word that we're using this morning. And what is vanity? Let me give you a quick definition. 
Vanity is, is the excessive and disordered love of the self at the expense of God. Vanity is the excessive and disordered love of ourselves at the expense, that's the key, at the expense of God. One of the articles I was reading in preparation for this was talked about that to be vain is to be in love with the show, as they put it. It's the love of the show. And, and some people will ask this question, what's the difference between pride and vanity? Well, they really are kissing cousins, I would say. But pride is really the desire to be excellent at all costs. And whereas vanity is the desire to show we're excellent at all costs. It's that pursuit of celebrity and fame at the cost of everything we might say. Reputation. There was a study done in 2004 in the Journal of Public Economics. I had no idea there was such a journal. Uh, there's a journal for everything. And in 2004, they did a study to show giving, the patterns of giving. And here's what they found out. There's a direct correlation between the size of the gift. It goes up if people know in advance that their names will be recognized for their gift. And so universities, by the way, are, are excellent at this, raising funds. We'll name a building after you. We'll name a park bench after you. <laughs> Whatever. We'll, we'll name something after you. People will give. And what the article is pointing to is what perhaps we know is obvious in hearing that, and it's this, reputation means everything. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1964, as some of you know, was awarded a Nobel Peace Prize in Oslo, Norway. And upon return, some of the boosters of the city of Atlanta wanted to honor him. The problem was in 1964, Atlanta, most of the leadership, of course being white leadership, was still pretty prejudiced and pretty racist. And so ticket sales to the event held at the Civic Center were incredibly slow until NBC News wrote an article about Atlanta. And in that article, they said, how about that? Dr. King wins the Nobel Peace Prize. And here he is, a son of Atlanta. Is this perhaps a picture of the capital of the New South? Well, when the boosters of Atlanta read the article, this was a national article. The reputation of Atlanta was on the line. And just like that, overnight, the thing sold out. Why? Taylor Branch, who I read this from in his biography on Dr. King and the Civil Rights Movement, he said, reputation. Atlanta had an image to maintain, an image at all cost. And I think that points us really to some of the words that actually uh, Jesus uses here. He number, notice a number of times through verses 2 through 6, he uses the word hypocrite. Now, in the ancient world, a hypocrite literally meant an actor. It was a, it was a term uh, in the Greek uh, culture for being a two, having two masks. And so if you know anything about ancient theater, they would have two masks, and there would be a good one and a bad one sort of thing like that. They would play two different parts. It's where we get the term two-faced from, by the way. And so a hypocrite was someone who presented a false image. And I think that's, that's appropriate here. Why does Jesus use this word hypocrite about the religious leaders? These were the Pharisees, by the way. These were the movers and shakers. They were the influencers. They were the boosters of their city of Jerusalem, we might say. And they had an image to portray, you see. And so what Jesus is pointing out here, there's a way that vanity focuses on the image knowing the reality is something different. We, next to our house, we've been living there for 16 years. There was a beautiful tree. I mean, just a gorgeous tree. It must have been probably 150 years old and probably 150 feet high. Uh, oak tree. And one day I came home to find a pink ribbon wrapped around the tree. 
And I, and I knew what that meant. It meant that the tree was being taken down by the city arborist. Now, we have these apartments next door to us, and there are ordinances or, or laws on the, that, that whenever there's a tree that would threaten an apartment community, it comes down. The city takes it down. But I could not understand for the life of me why they wanted to take this gorgeous tree down. And I looked at it, it was beautiful. But what the city arborist could see that I could not see was at the very top of the tree was deadness. And they knew, because that's what an arborist is looking for, they knew it was saying something about the inside of that tree. But I still couldn't believe it. The tree was so beautiful, it gave wonderful shade to our property. And I felt almost upset emotionally as they were taking this tree down. But sure enough, don't you know, when they took it down, the inside was completely dead, hollowed out. There was nothing in the, in the interior. It's interesting. I've been using the word vanity, but the other word that's used by the ancients is vain glory, which literally means empty, hollow glory. It's a, something on the outside that looks like the real thing, but far from it. And I think that's what Jesus is, is getting at here. Brendan Manning, one of my favorite writers, he's a Catholic priest, he's since passed, but he said this in one of my favorite books called The Ragamuffin Gospel. He says, the noonday devil of the Christian life is the temptation to lose the inner self while preserving the shell of edifying behavior. Suddenly I discover that I'm ministering to AIDS victims to enhance my resume. I find I renounced ice cream for Lent to lose five excess pounds. I drop hints about the absolute priority of meditation and contemplation to create the impression that I am a man of prayer. At some unremembered moment, I've lost the connection between internal purity of heart and external works of piety. I have fallen victim to what T.S. Eliot calls the greatest sin, to do the right thing for the wrong reason. And I don't know about you, but that's a dagger in my heart. Because I could not get through that quote without finding myself in it. I can't tell you how many times, truth being told, as a pastor, as just a servant of Christ, I can't tell you how many times I've been serving. Uh, we, we serve with Clifton uh, Sanctuary Men's Ministry, part of our, um, our neighborhood community group. And it's happened there. It's happened elsewhere where, where I'll be serving alone. And then uh, when someone comes into the room, I just instinctively, I can hear the voice in my heart just say, I hope they saw what I just did. And what is that? The very thing that Jesus is talking about. At that moment, what's given away is the fact that at best, my motives are mixed. And that's a hard thing. How many of us like to be called vain, right? I mean, you talk about, you, know, you can handle some things, but man, that is not something that most of us can handle is being called vain, right? We feel cheap. We feel weird in a way, but the reality is all of us have some of this in us. Even on our best days, sometimes that's the case. Vanity is not attractive, and yet, paradoxically, it's very attractive, which leads us to the second thing. If this is what vanity is, why is it so glittering? Why, why does it have a shine to it that we seem like moths to a flame attracted to? So let's dive in here. And if we go back to verse 2, we won't need to necessarily reread that, but if you go back to verse 2, one of the things, and again, uh, Jesus says this over and over again, three different times in six verses, that what he says there 
is that they live for the word praise. They live for the praise of men. Now, the word there in the Greek, and I don't typically talk about the original language, but know this, that if I do, it's for a very good reason, and this is one of those. The word there is doxaso, okay, which means praise. Now, it's done four times in the Gospel of Matthew. In the first one, it's chapter 5, verse 16, which is probably the reason why Jesus brings it up now just a few verses later. He says there, let them see your works that they may give glory to him. So again, Jesus is not saying the issue is, is that people see your works. That somehow that it's serving in our city, serving in our ministries, both within the church and outside the church, that, that no, you need to hide that. No, in fact, he says, and Jim actually prayed about it. He says, let your light shine before men, a city shining on a hill. That's from Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5. And then two other times, right after this passage, Jesus is performing miracles, and twice it says that people give glory to God, doxaso. Only one time is it used in the negative, and it's here. And he uses the exact same word that he does for the glory of God. Why? Well, you can probably guess why. Because what he's saying there is, what we do is that we replace the glory of God with the glory of self. Doxaso. And so the very thing that we should be giving to the Lord is the very thing that we want for ourselves. In other words, we become, as it were, little gods. And Genesis chapter 3, the fall, tells us all about what that's about. Where the evil one says to Adam and Eve, listen, I know that he's placed you second command. But do you really want to be second fiddle? You can be gods. Vanity is the desire to be known as a God, that our light may shine for ourselves, that people might see that we are all that in the workplace, in our homes, in our neighborhood. I think this is a temptation for so many of us, certainly, as I've said, myself included. Listen to what Augustine, in his great epic work, City of God, said, accordingly, Two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, uh, excuse me, the love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself, the latter in the Lord. For the one seeks glory from human beings, but the greatest glory of the other is God, the witness of conscience. I want to point out something here, and um, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. It's something that C.S. Lewis talked about. He actually preached a sermon. He wasn't primarily known as a, as a preacher, of course. He was a philosopher. He was, he was in literature. But, but one thing that he said there in a sermon called The Weight of Glory is he said that uh, all of us has been made for rewards. And the problem is we go after the wrong rewards. And so you notice here in the passage, of course, that multiple times Jesus talks about this will be the reward. And what Lewis says is that, that when you go after the, the wrong reward, it, it gives evidence that we're made for something better, which is how I want to now transition. I want you to see that the reason why we go after vanity is because we're made for something that's like it but different. It's called glory. Listen to what uh, Lewis says about reward. He says, there are different kinds of reward. There is the reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it and is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. Money is not the natural reward of love. That is why we call a man mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for a real lover, and he is not mercenary for desiring it. The proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, but are their activity itself in consummation. Now you may be saying, okay, what does it have to do with this passage? 
Well, think about the reward that the religious leaders were going after. Was it proper to serve and to give alms, as it was called, for the poor and the powerless? Absolutely. Was it proper to pray? I mean, Jesus himself prayed publicly, so it's not an issue of public prayer. So that's not the problem, Jesus is saying. So is it proper for for us to pray to God publicly as well as privately? Certainly. You see, giving to the poor and the powerless, praying, what is that? Worship. So what's the proper reward for the worship of God? It's to hear the Father say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. But what are they after? They want to hear from human beings, well done, thy good and faithful servant, as Augustine said. You see, it's having the right desire for the wrong outcome. Or as T.S. Eliot put it, doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Motivation. Vanity has a different motivation behind it. And I love it, and I got this out of order, but let me now go back to it. Isaiah 43.1. Listen to what it says there about our names. It says this, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. All of us were made for reputation. We were made to have a name. We were made to have a, a name that shines. The problem is not that you desire glory. The problem is not that I desire glory. The problem is where I believe I can find glory. And left to our own devices, waiting on the accolades of men and women in our workplaces and in our homes, from our children, from our, from our parents, and from loved ones, waiting for the accolades from our neighbors. You see what that does? It's exhausting because you're only as good as your next accolade. We need something better. We need a for sure name, one that cannot be taken away, which leads to a different kind of glory. And so I want to give you now a diagnostic test. You know, some of you have been here for any length of time. You know, I love diagnostic tests, right? I love for us just to ask the questions like, is this my issue? And by the way, you can come here for the next seven weeks and you can come here on this first one. You can say, this is not really my issue. Okay, that's fine. Just come next week. And I can assure you, somewhere along the way, you're going to say, I failed that test. But for, uh, for us this morning, if we think this may be your issue, listen. So here's the question. Imagine you're in a situation, maybe it's your workplace, and you actually truly deserve accolades, but you get passed over. The, your work was not truly seen. So ask yourself this question when that happens. How do you feel? Do you feel sad? Disappointed? You may be surprised to hear me say, that's actually a godly response. Being disappointed, being sad for something that you truly deserve, that's okay. But here's the question. Are you crushed? Is your sense of reputation, is your sense of of who you are being, as it were, does it feel like it's at stake? If that's the case, it points to vanity as opposed to God-given reputation. You see, we're made for glory. The question is what happens when we don't get the glory that we deserve, which leads to the last thing here. What is it actually in vanity we're actually wanting to get, but we just go about it in a sinful way? What is it we're actually made for? And the answer is God-given glory. The last thing I want to talk about very briefly here. How do we get to that God-given glory? And the answer is the very person who was preaching that message, Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus, before and after the Sermon on the Mount, if you look at his life, you see a, a study of someone who had every opportunity to be vain, as it were. I mean, think about it. He's preaching in a way that over and over and over again, everyone says, 
Who is this that preaches and teaches in a way that none of the religious leaders do? I mean, he was the best of the best when it came to teaching. And then, of course, when he's not teaching, what is he doing? He's performing miracles. The, the lame can walk, the blind can see. Over and over and over again. And, and what happens? Throngs of people begin to follow him. I mean, imagine if that was you. Imagine if, if you were a really good teacher and throngs begin to follow you on your Twitter feeds, your Facebook feeds, Instagram. And, and uh, uh, imagine if in, you could do amazing things, certainly probably not miracles, but certainly you had a lot of power and an influence. What would you do with that? What would, that, what would you feel in your heart if you were anything like me, you begin to feel pretty grandiose? You begin to feel like, I am something. But what does Jesus do? You know how many times when he would perform a miracle and he'd say, keep that to yourself. Why? Because Jesus had a different mission. What was his mission? Well, it's the season that leads up to Good Friday. What was he preparing for? The cross. I want you to hear something that Paul said in a hymn of praise. This is Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 7. In, in celebrating Christ, he said, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Emptied himself. The word there in the original is kino. And the word vainglory literally is kino doxa. In other words, what do we do? Vainglory. We're empty and we try to fill ourselves with glory. What does Jesus do? Jesus, full of glory, empties his glory. It's a paradox. And what is Jesus doing? Why does Jesus do that? So that you and I would be filled with true glory. That we would know who we truly are and who we're intended to be. The beloved sons and daughters of God. If you're in Christ, you have all the reputation. You have all the praise that you will ever need no matter what happens to you, whatever lot falls in your life. Scott McKnight, in a wonderful book called The Jesus Creed, he says this, Our reputation, what others think of us, is not as important as our identity, who we really are. Spiritual formation begins when we untangle reputation and identity, and when what God thinks of us is more important than what we think of ourselves or what others think of us. My question to you here at the end is, do you know that you already have the applause of heaven? And that's literally what this means. If you're in Christ, when the Father looks at you, he sees the Son. I mean, think about that. Everything that the Son stands for, everything that his Son was and is and will be, we might say, everything, he sees you in the same way. So when he says, well done, that good and faithful, he's not simply saying that to the Son. He says it to you as you do your good works. And so I think what that means for us as a church family, is that we are now liberated. We are now free to serve no matter who sees what in our lives. Whether they see anything or not, it's besides the point. We already have the applause of heaven. We already have the name. We already have the reputation. We have a much better name. We have a much better reputation than, than the media, social media, anyone could ever possibly give us that we could possibly ever hold on to. Or this is permanent. This is eternal. And so may we as a church family, may we as individuals, May we bless the Lord. You know, I, I, I want to conclude with this. You know, 
even as we look at the headlines right now, we can see the cost of vanity and the need for this. Why do I say that? What's happening, of course, in the Ukraine? Frank Bruni wrote an op-ed article recently, just a couple of days ago, in light of this. And one of the things that he noticed is that there's not been war, at least of this scale in Europe, since World War II. And he said to himself at the beginning of the article, he said, I said, I thought we were past this. I thought we were at a place as the nations in a westernized democratic world where we get past the bloodshed, get past the grandioseness and so forth. He says, but I was wrong. I was naive. And then later on the article referencing Putin in particular and about what was, uh, he said in his, as a KGB agent in the 80s, as he watched the Soviet empire fall, he was embarrassed for his nation. And he vowed, he said, he vowed to bring back the glory of an empire. And Frank Bruni says this towards the end of his article, embarrassment, vanity, viciousness. History never moves on or gets past these forces which drove invasions and conquest in centuries past and will drive invasions and conquest in years to come. The issues of vanity, the issue of glory. It's individual, but has great results, both good and evil. We're watching that happen in our world as we speak. And so may we, as Jesus said just a few verses before this passage, may we be the city that shines on a hill, not just the city of Atlanta, but for the nations and for the world. May we be men and women who embrace his glory so that people might be pointed to the glory of God rather than the vanity of men. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this reminder for such a time as this, as we look at the headlines, as we see uh, Ukrainians suffer deeply and dearly because of hubris. But the reality is, hubris existed long before Ukraine. Hubris existed long before Russia. Hubris has always existed since Genesis chapter 3, for we are part of the problem. And yet, even in our hubris, even in our thirst, in our drive, and our hunger for personal conquest, it points to something that we truly are made for that's been distorted, and that is your glory in us. Thank you for name. Thank you for reputation. Thank you that we have all the reputation that we will ever need to truly be human. Even as we said earlier in Psalm chapter 8, what is man that you're mindful of, the son of man that you care for him, for you have crowned him with glory. May we hold on to that glory. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. Amen. Now we come to a time of confession, and I want, to, I want you to reflect, all right, what, what's going on?